The whole number of electors appointed to vote for President of the United States is 538. Within that whole number, a majority is 270. The votes for President of the United States are as follows. Joseph R. Biden, Jr. of the state of Delaware has received 306 votes. Donald J. Trump of the state of Florida has received 232 votes. The announcement of the state of the vote by the President of the Senate shall be deemed a sufficient declaration of the persons elected president and vice president of the United States, each for the term beginning on the 20th day of January, 2021, and shall be entered together with the list of the votes on the journals of the Senate and the House of Representatives. That was Vice President Mike Pence at 3.33 Thursday morning, officially certifying that Joe Biden and not Donald Trump had been officially elected the next president of the United States. It was the final nail in the coffin of Trump's persistent and mindless demands that the election results from last November be overturned, culminating in a horrifying day of chaos and violence in which a mob incited by the president stormed the Capitol, smashed windows, broke into offices, and literally terrorized members of Congress for hours as the images of a democracy in chaos flashed around the world. We'll talk to one of those members, freshman Republican Congresswoman Nancy Mace of South Carolina, about what it was like for her and her family after she refused to go along with the president's feudal election gambit, and then found herself threatened by angry Trump supporters on social media, and in one case, in person. And then we'll talk to our Yahoo News colleague, Hunter Walker, about what it was like covering the riot and what will happen to Trump as a growing number of administration officials quit in protest, all on this episode of Skullduggery. Because people have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostage. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true, but the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. There will be no lies. We will honor the American people with the truth and nothing else. I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. What a wild, sad, and shameful day it was to see those images of rioters breaking into the Capitol, carrying Confederate flags, uh, and members cowering in fear at some moments. I suspect January 6, 2021 is, as some have already said, going to go down as a day in infamy. We will be forever seared in our brains, much like December 7th, 1941, much like November 22nd, 1963, 9 11 itself. It's a day we'll all remember in sorrow. And a day that I think, um, you know, at some levels, none of us expected would ever. And it could, could happen, e even over the last four years with Trump, when so many of us were warning that this kind of thing could happen, it was still, at some level, you still, you know, didn't believe it. it was like everything else about Trump, and that we've said many times on, on this podcast, that what he does is shocking, but not surprising. 
And, you know, there are some indelible images. I have to say one of them is just seeing the way that uh, the Capitol Police were overwhelmed by those uh, rioters, by th- those insurgents, as our friend David Ignatius uh, has, has been calling them, that at a kind of a symbolic level, the country was not prepared for, you know, that breach of very citadel of, of American democracy. I got to say, though, that I find that on some level inexplicable. This was a massive intelligence failure by the Capitol Police and law enforcement in general. Anybody who was keeping an eye on social media over the last few weeks would have seen what the QAnon people were talking about, what some of these angry Trump supporters were talking about. There were references to violence. I tweeted just a couple of weeks ago, this guy, Patrick Byrne, you know, the overstock guy who's uh, spreading conspiracy theories, who was in meeting with Trump just a couple of weeks ago with Sidney Powell and Mike Flynn on one of his podcasts after that meeting, he started talking about the need to bring arms, to bring weapons to the Capitol on January 6th, because we have to be prepared for what might happen. Now, That was as public as you can get. So how is it that, uh, you know, we spend billions of dollars in intelligence in this country, Homeland Security? And I mean, Adam Kinzinger, Republican congressman from Illinois, who was just on our podcast, was talking about this uh, just a few days ago about the how this rhetoric uh, was going to lead to violence. I don't know. At some level, it is this kind of weird cognitive dissonance. You know, we we hear the rhetoric. We've seen violence in the streets, but it's still kind of hard to believe. There's a kind of a denial. You know, what, what, what's interesting to me is, you know, now in the last 24 hours, we have seen all of these uh, resignations uh, from, you know, high-ranking people in the Trump administration. Elaine Chow, uh, Secretary of Transportation, Mick McConnell's wife, Mick Mulvaney, the former chief of staff who's been a special envoy to, to Ireland, uh, resigned so, today. Uh, Matt Pottinger, the deputy national security advisor, and I think they're going to be many more. And, you know, the first, your first instinct is to say, you know, well, too little, too late. Why didn't these people speak up before? And I think there is truth to that. On the other hand, the other way of looking at this is that yesterday really was a, a uh, you know, a kind of a inflection point, a demarcation point, a phrase that, uh, that Kinsinger Adam Kinsinger used. used yeah, the yeah, day, last week. Right. Last week in, in a slightly different uh, context. But, you know, what's interesting is that I think that at some level, people in this country and people who hold high elective office have realized that this can't even the fact that there's 13 days, only 13 days left in this presidency. It's too dangerous to continue on like this for the next 13 days. And the only solution is to get this guy out of office, which is why Nancy Pelosi and many others have now called for the Trump cabinet to act, not just resign, but move against him by supporting an invocation of the 25th Amendment. 
And Pelosi said uh, just a few moments ago before we taped this that uh, if Pence does not act, the House will move to impeach. Now, as a practical matter, it's hard to see how far that can go. Yes, the House can impeach. Pelosi will have to call them back into session because they're not in session right now. Resolutions, impeachment resolutions are already being drafted and they could be introduced as privileged resolutions on the go straight to the floor, bypass the committee process, send it over to the Senate. Now, is there any likelihood there's going to be a Senate trial? No, but Trump will become a president who was impeached twice. There could be a censure. Could Trump be tried in the Senate after he leaves office? I don't think so, because the purpose of a trial is removal from office. I mean, the the penalty from a trial is removal from office. But I I should add that there are other routes being looked at. We just reported on Yahoo News that uh, uh, congressional Democrats are drafting criminal referrals to the Justice Department to give to the new Justice Department on January 21st to investigate Trump, uh, Rudy Giuliani, Trump Jr., perhaps others for inciting violence. I don't know. That strikes me as also a bit iffy. There are civil liberties questions about wording, but I think there definitely is a consensus, a hunger that there has to be serious consequences for what happened. I think so. I think that's exactly right. And I think it is a bipartisan consensus now. You know, the question is, what is it that you do? I I know, by the way, just just as we're talking about this, the New York Times is breaking a story that uh, Trump has been talking among some of his aides about his desire to pardon himself. Uh, So test the constitutionality of a self-pardon. God. All right. Um, Hey, listen, you know, we've got a really interesting guest, two guests, but, you know, a really interesting one to start out with, Nancy Mace. She's this freshman Republican uh, from South Carolina, one of this new crop of of young Republican women who were elected. She has a fascinating life story, (laughs) former waitress at a Waffle House who worked her way up. Uh, having graduated from the the Citadel, first woman to do so, served in the South Carolina House, and came here all excited about uh, being in Washington and uh, public service, and then was walloped uh, with uh, what happened this week. It'll be really interesting to hear what she has to say. Uh, And then, of course, we've got Hunter to talk about uh, what, what it was like covering those riots. Imagine this being your first couple of days in office in the Congress and you're in, you know, lockdown and, and you know, hiding from a mob who, you know, rampaging through yeah. uh, through the House. I mean, extraordinary. She's going to be fascinating to listen to. So let's get to it. We are now joined by Congresswoman Nancy Mace of South Carolina. Congresswoman, welcome to Skullduggery. Goodness. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. So, look, uh, this was going to be, looked like it was going to be the most exciting day of your professional life. You were sworn in as a new freshman member of Congress from South Carolina. You bring your children up to watch this historic day. And then Wednesday happens. Tell us what it was like for you, where you were, and what your reaction is to what you witnessed. Uh, devastated right now. In fact, this morning I woke up in tears. Um, when I look back the last couple of days, 
Um, this weekend, I'm a single working mom. I flew my two kids who are in middle school up here to witness the historic swearing in. It was very exciting. It's such a huge honor to be up here and to and to have this opportunity being given to me oh, in this election cycle. And then by the end of the weekend, we were up here, I was, I was seeing some of the rhetoric online, um, seeing some of the, the message that were being sent to me personally and via my campaign and official channels. And I said, time out, this doesn't feel right. This feels very uncomfortable. I don't like the way this feels. I worry about the rhetoric that's being talked about regarding January 6th. People were getting very uh, riled up. And I decided on Sunday night to put my children on the first flight home on Monday morning. They wanted to stay the entire week because, because of COVID-19, they're unable to go to school. We're doing virtual learning and it was gonna be a great opportunity for them to, to roam the halls of Congress, to witness history and do school at the same time. What a great civics lesson. But Monday morning I said, I love you, but you gotta go home because I'm worried about your safety. And uh, unfortunately my motherly instincts were right. Our, my greatest fears came true. Uh, yesterday, we saw that rhetoric on display, the violent rhetoric at the rally. Um, when you talk that way, we should, I guess, now not be surprised that people will act in that manner. I, I'm shocked. I was heartbroken yesterday. And uh, this morning when I, I saw bits and pieces yesterday of what was happening, and I, I could hear all day, all afternoon, the sirens uh, going into the evening of the Capitol Police, National Guard, everyone, everyone, in, every man and woman in uniform protecting uh, not only members of Congress, our staff, but also citizens. But I'm just heartbroken by it all. I'm shocked. Um, and I'm angry. I think I'm angrier today than I was yesterday. Um, but when I saw those images and those videos this morning, it literally brought me to my knees. It brought me to tears. Violence will only beget more violence. Where were you when the Capitol building was breached when that was happening physically? Um, so I was on the way to my office in Cannon, where we were evacuated and then we were allowed to go back in. At one point, we were stuck in a tunnel under the Capitol with uh, several other members of Congress and maybe 100 staffers who were evacuated from Cannon. We were in this tunnel. And then when we were able to get back to our offices, that's when the breach happened. We were put immediately into lockdown. We had to lock our office doors, turn off the lights. And uh, you weren't speaking, you could just hear the sirens all across the Capitol. And um, it, was, it, was, it was scary. I was worried about my staff. I wanted to make sure every person was accounted for and that we were all in a safe place. Congresswoman, you say you are angry. Who are you angry at? From the top down. Um, the, the rhetoric that has been used leading up to this, misleading millions of Americans. Uh, we've seen rhetoric on the far right that has, that has enabled and incited this kind of behavior. The, the kind of things I have heard constituents say to me, people who live in my district and outside of the district and across the country, it's totally unacceptable. And it, it's led to this moment. And I really think that misleading and lying to the American people over these last few weeks, and it's one of the reasons I was I've been you know, fairly quiet on the issue because I wasn't going to participate in such shenanigans. I wasn't going to pull, I wasn't going to fleece the American people. I wasn't going to mislead them or take advantage of their hearts or their minds or their wallets on the voter fraud issue is what we're seeing. And so um, it's, it's distressing to see that millions of people truly believe that by a simple objection, Congress could single-handedly somehow overturn the results of the election, not possible according to our constitution. It's distressing to know that millions of people across the country were misled to believe that the vice president of the United States could single-handedly overturn the results of the election. And thank God that Vice President Mike Pence put an end to that rumor yesterday morning, entirely not true. I think emotions were running high, expectations were high, and this was the end result.
Congresswoman, I was going to ask, I mean, you said you, you were shocked, and at some level we we were all shocked by what happened yesterday. But at the same time, as you said, we know that this kind of rhetoric can lead to violence. I wonder, um, since you, you know, have just been running for office, what you saw on the campaign trail where th- these ideas, this kind of rhetoric, this this anger was bubbling up and how concerned you've been about it since you've been running for office. Yeah. And really for me, that, that sort of thing really happened after the no- November election. Because of COVID-19, I really didn't see as much of it because we, we weren't campaigning in person as much. Mm-hmm, we were doing mm-hmm. some things online. It, it was it was different. The emotions were different. But when November 3rd happened and we saw this rhetoric coming out, very strong, very divisive rhetoric, things changed. And I think, you know, as Republicans, we, we believe we are the party of law and order. We are respectful. We don't burn cities down. We've been watching the far left and both parties have extremist, extremism on both sides. We've been watching our cities burn for the last six to nine months. And we've always, I've always believed that that's not simply who we are, but the rhetoric of the last four to eight weeks leading up to this moment, the things that were said, the expectations that were made, the lies that were stated led to this moment. And we need to hold ourselves accountable for that. And that's why I came out very strongly, very early on yesterday that I was heartbroken. I asked the president to get off Twitter and get on television to calm the American people down to take a step back, take a deep breath and say that this is wrong. We need to take responsibility for it. We need to rebuild our country and we need to rebuild the Republican Party after last night. I take it you weren't satisfied with the he didn't go on television, but he issued a a video on Twitter in which he praised and said he loved the perpetrators of this violence while also kind of weakly telling them to be to to go home. So what was your reaction to the president's statement? First and foremost, the priority should be to ask people to follow the rule of law and to peacefully return home. That was the only message that I believe the American people needed to hear last night and today. I was also equally disappointed that some politicians wanted to continue to advocate for objecting to the Electoral College last night after this violence, where four people died last night, one of them in the halls of the Capitol, right around the corner from the doors where we enter the chambers to the Capitol to do the business of the people. It was uh, distressing. It was disappointing. And it made me angry. I was pissed off last night. I am more pissed off today than I was yesterday. It's a solemn day today, realizing what happened and what we continued to do last night in the debate. Everyone knew going into it, it was futile. We were not going to be able to overturn the results of the election. And yet, you know, the effort was still there to do that. And I think that given what happened last night, we should have really thought long and hard about what we were doing and how we were doing it. And uh, I'm just really disappointed today. Congresswoman, many of your colleagues, uh, certainly Democrats, are today calling for impeachment, for invoking the 25th Amendment. Uh, One of your Republican colleagues, Adam Kinzinger, who was a guest on Skullduggery just last week, also today is calling for the president's removal from office. What are your thoughts? Should there be consequences for what happened and what should they be? Well, truth be told, Congress will not be in session, I believe, before January 20th when the swearing in will happen. Some some Democrats are today 
are they going to press the leadership to to reconvene Congress okay. for this purpose? I, I am I am approximately a hundred hours into my my term in Congress. I'm working on about two hours of sleep. I haven't seen or heard. Of, I've heard of the Adam Kensinger statement or that there's a video. Out. I haven't had a chance to see it yet. In between talking to my family and and folks back home. I'm on a every 10 minute sort of schedule right now. I don't know what folks are going to do. I've heard that Representative Omar will be filing articles of impeachment um, and understand that Representative Kensinger wants the 25th Amendment. I think we've got to be very careful with special regards to the 25th Amendment because my understanding, and I haven't read it line for line, but when I make a decision or take a position, I'm going to read the facts presented and I'm going to read the Constitution and make a decision from there. But my understanding with 25A is that uh, it's related to illness. And so I need to learn a little bit more about what's happening, what's going on, and what are the facts, and, and, and make a decision from there. Let me just, understanding that you don't want to, 100 hours into this, you don't want to make a judgment about whether the 25th Amendment should be evoked. But what Kinzinger mm-hmm. said, I have a quote from his statement here. He said, the president has become unmoored, not just from his duties— but from reality itself. And he says it's time to invoke the 25th Amendment and end this nightmare. But then he says the president is unfit and unwell. Do you disagree with that, that he's unfit and unwell, regardless of of whether the 25th Amendment ought to be invoked? Yeah, I'm not going to. I haven't ever made a statement on someone's mental health, and I'm not going to, you know, start doing that today. I think that that I just would never do that personally. Um, I do believe that the rhetoric that has come out of the president and out of far right fringe members of our party is vehemently wrong. I want to see that wrong righted. Uh, I want to I want to hear folks admit that this is our responsibility, that we enabled this, that we need to take responsibility for it and and find a way to bring together members of our own party and acknowledge that we need to be leading ourselves to this crisis that we need to be find solutions and not be part of the problem and that was one of the issues i saw last night if even after all of this destruction after the four deaths that happened last night that we were still objecting to this everyone knows that last night was a futile attempt that was going to fail you cannot adjudicate investigation or investigate uh, allegations of voter fraud in an hour-long debate on the floor of the U.S. House of Representatives. And we just continued to do that. And I believe that that was, that was wrong. We needed, to, we needed to end it immediately last night. And so I really hope that my colleagues will continue to condemn the violence and encourage our leadership to, to speak out. Let's take responsibility for it. And let's find solutions to lead us through the crisis. You mentioned you've been talking to your family. What did you mm-hmm. say to your kids? about what happened yesterday and what was their reaction? That mommy's safe. Um, We FaceTimed, we texted about every hour yesterday. Um, I'm going to wait until I get home with their father. I'm a single mom and uh, we're going to have that conversation with them face to face. I don't want them to be afraid that every time that mommy goes to DC, that mommy's life is in danger. But the the threats are real. Um, someone threatened to shoot me on social media recently. I was accosted on a street in D.C. on Tuesday night by someone who drove up from my home state of South Carolina and disagreed with me on my vote to certify the Electoral College, which is explicitly laid out in the Constitution in the 12th Amendment in Title III of the U.S. Code and Article II, Section 1, Clause 2 of the U.S. Constitution. And so um, regardless if we don't like the outcome of an election, we have a constitutional duty to protect our republic for our future and for our nation's future. And so it doesn't really matter what you say to some of these folks. It doesn't matter. 
they're going to attack you anyway. And even though I, I dug my heels in, I came out strong and I believed more so last night than I did the day before about the position I was taking. I woke up this morning with folks continuing to attack me for my position. And uh, I am not going to relent. This is the right place to be. And I'm going to do the right thing for my kids and my country. You talk about the importance of finding solutions. You've just arrived in Congress, and we are dealing with this enormous crisis, huge problems, enormous structural mm -hmm. problems in our politics. What solutions, I mean, without sounding Pollyannish, what solutions are there to these problems? How will you approach that? How will you attack these problems with your colleagues? Well, internally, I've tried to be a voice of reason and explain to, to folks within my party that this is not the way that we operate. We're the party of limited government. We're the party that literally physically should be embracing the Constitution. We're the party that should be embracing the rule of law, that we, we, we talk about defending our police, not defunding them. And yet I'm seeing and watching and witnessing video of members of our party physically attacking and assaulting the Capitol Police punching through the, the windows of the U.S. Capitol to get in. Uh, these were not protesters. These were rioters. This was anarchy. Um, and so we have a lot that we need to internally recognize, acknowledge, take responsibility for it, and going forward. And I think we need that in a very public manner, but be part of that solution and acknowledge, hey, we've enabled some of this. We've misled the American people, and we're not going to do that anymore. We're going to be better than that. And just because we've seen six to nine months of violence in our streets by thugs and Antifa doesn't mean we can do it too. A violence only begets more violence, and two wrongs do not make a right. And, and that's the kind of message that I want to see our leadership take forward to the American people. I'm on two hours of sleep and 100 hours into office, but, but off the cuff, that is, is first and foremost on my mind today. Congresswoman, you were a, a big supporter of the president. You supported him in 2016. Mm -hmm. You were a member of the South Carolina I worked House. For him. You, mm -hmm. you worked for his campaign. Mm -hmm. um, so I'd like to hear how you process what you've watched unfold over the last four to six weeks after having been such a big supporter of the president. Do you feel betrayed? I will tell you personally, it's been very difficult for me to reconcile the two over the last eight weeks. I've been uh, criticized for being quiet or being silent. But for me, I've been trying to observe what's going on without without holding judgment. I've been talking to folks in different states behind the scenes on what's going on. Is there voter fraud? Is there not voter fraud? Congress can't adjudicate voter fraud. But I wanted to try to really collect and research as much information as I could. And and uh, I've, been, I've built some relationships with folks in different state legislatures now and trying to get, a, to get an understanding all of this. And it was really, really disheartening to see what was going on, seeing voters' hearts, minds, and wallets taken advantage of, seeing over half a billion dollars raised to fight voter fraud, and yet only a very small percentage, pennies on the dollar of that money, actually being used to investigate or fight voter fraud. And uh, I, I'm not the type of person to take advantage of our citizens, and I'm not going to be party to that. But it's been very difficult for me to watch. And as, as we were leading up to this and I was seeing what was going on, I have become very vocal this week because I'm pissed off and I'm angry. We did this to ourselves. This is one of the reasons, one of the many reasons that we lost the Georgia Senate. Um, we cannot continue to try to fleece the American people. We need to be honest with them and at all costs, even when we don't like the outcome. Well, would you say then that you're no longer a supporter of President Trump? And at some level, are you concerned that in your support for him over the last 
you know, several years that you were an enabler in some ways of, of President Trump? No, I would not say I've been, I'm an enabler. I think those that enable are the ones that have been using the rhetoric that led to yesterday. I've been very pragmatic in my support of, of anyone. He supported my candidacy. I supported him in, in 2016. He's one of the reasons that many Republicans got elected and flipped seats from Democrat to Republican. But at the same time, we have to be honest with voters about this. And we need to acknowledge what has gone wrong over the last eight weeks, take responsibility for it. And that's what I'm trying to do now and, and acknowledge that, hey, my own party, we've, we've done this. And I want to be part of the solution. I don't want to be part of the problem. It's why I was extremely vocal. I didn't I didn't know that I had that I had it in me to be that vocal yesterday, be that strong, because I was so angry yesterday by what I was witnessing that I urged the president to get off Twitter and to get onto television to bring peace to the American people. That's what we needed yesterday. We needed real leadership. And I wasn't satisfied with what was going on. I was uh, I'm trying to encourage our colleagues to condemn the violence. Four people died last night. I have never seen anything like this in my life, and uh, I'm just so heartbroken for our country and for our party today, and I don't want this to be the future for my children or my grandchildren, which is why I am being so vocal right now. But just back to my first question, mm-hmm. just quickly, I mean, is this has this been an inflection point? Can you still be a supporter of Donald Trump? No, this isn't an inflection point. Yesterday, it, it was, it was, it was unnecessary. It didn't and should not have happened. And uh, when I hear back some of the tapes from the rhetoric, the things that were spoken at that rally yesterday, there was no doubt in my mind that those individuals heard those words and were motivated to be violent based on what they were hearing at the rally. And uh, I do hold uh, some of the far right fringes of my own party accountable and responsible for this, not just yesterday, but for the days and weeks leading up to it. You know, you make a good point about the days and weeks moving up to yesterday, mm-hmm. because there was a lot of rhetoric on social media out there about the potential for violence. A lot of people are saying this was, at a minimum, a huge intelligence failure by the Capitol Police, by law enforcement in general, and not anticipating just how out of control this could get. Yeah, and, and and I'm new to the Capitol to Capitol Hill and and how the security processes work and how the Capitol Police work as well. Um, when I get a little bit of rest and I really absorb what happened and and go back through and see some of those things, the breaches, I never in my I don't think in anyone's right mind we thought that that anyone could breach the Capitol in the way that they did. We clearly didn't have enough uh, law enforcement around the Capitol, and uh, I just. You know, before I say, hey, this X, Y, and Z, this is what we need to do, we really need to look and, and do an after action review and see where our, our uh, weaknesses are so that we can ensure this doesn't happen again. Uh, for example, I know as a new member um, on my staff, I should have at least one person who's my, our security contact and we get a phone number for the sergeant at arms. But what else can we do to ensure our protection when we're up here or when we are in district? As someone who's a Republican who voted and clearly delineated the way I was going to vote for at least seven days prior to the certification process of the electoral college, I was threatened. Uh, someone threatened to shoot me on social media. And I was accosted in the street of D.C. on Tuesday night. Um, so uh, these threats are real. And, uh, and so we want, we want to make sure that whatever process is going forward or put in place are going to be effective. This person who accosted you, I mean, mm-hmm. uh, this is a constituent 
who drove Correct. who who drove all the way up from South Carolina to yeah to do this? I mean, and what was it? Can you just describe what happened? Yeah, I, I actually was going to get a bite to eat. It was I hadn't eaten all day. I was going to go get supper. And uh, the person, you know, when you're a public figure and elected official, you are recognizable in some cases. And this person came up to me and touched me and got in my face. They were visibly shaken. You could see some tears in their eyes. And, uh, you know, I, I've tried to explain to people the Constitution and why I took the position that I was going to certify the election and, and not object to the Electoral College. But what I've learned in the last seven days is it doesn't matter what I said. Uh, unfortunately, uh, people were lied to so much over the last eight weeks. They're unwilling to listen to the truth. And, and that makes me incredibly sad for our nation and for our party. And as I walked away, I, I'll talk to anybody, whether we're on the, the same political party or not, whether we agree on an issue or not, I literally will talk to you. You want to have a conversation, we'll, we'll have it. Um, but as I walked away, you know, they were yelling expletives at me. And uh, it's just, it's it's un-American, it's wrong, and we're better than this. This is, you know, we hope a fringe that came to Washington. But you mm -hmm. come from you come from South Carolina. You're the first congressional district, the Low Country. Uh, overwhelming support for the president in your district, uh, and uh, presumably most of them are not the kinds of folks who did what we saw yesterday. How are your constituents in general processing this, as best you yeah. can tell? And what kind of conversations do you want to have with them, given that you know they've been strong? backers of the president, just like you, mm -hmm. all these years. Yeah. Well, I won my district by one point, still categorized as a swing district. So I am in a slightly different district than other members of the delegation in either party in the state of South Carolina. But Trump um, did so carry your district. He I carried guess. my district by five, I think five and a half points. I carried okay. it by one. And uh, and so it is, it, it is different. We've always had sort of an independent streak. And I was you know, running against a person who was very well liked on both sides of the aisle. And uh, it's not the same district that it used to be. We've always had sort of a pro-military, but with an independent libertarian pro-environment kind of district. It's a different kind of Republican district as well. But I plan on listening to my constituents and, and uh, you know, my goal, what I said when I was running for Congress is that I would put their issues first, but that I would also always follow the Constitution. I swore a solemn oath to the Constitution on Sunday. And even though I didn't like the outcome of the election in November, uh, I had no business objecting to the Electoral College because I didn't have the right to do that and would not, given the Constitution. Uh, you know, if we, by doing that, uh, we are disenfranchising millions and millions of voters. And you just simply can't adjudicate allegations of voter fraud in an hour-long debate on the House floor of the U.S. House of Representatives on a, on a single objection to a state of a slate of Electoral College votes. I mean, it's just totally unrealistic and it's a lie. And I won't participate in that. You are one of the uh, many new Republican women elected to Congress uh, this November. Give us, if you can give us a little, a little bit of your biography, because I think it's a really interesting one, and a lot of us would, uh, a lot of our listeners would love to hear. But it. I would first, I would love to come back on and talk about it. It's a, it's a story of second chances and ups and downs. I have failed as much as I have succeeded. I dropped out of school at the age of seventeen. My first job was as a waitress at a Waffle House on the side of the interstate. I would eventually get my life together and go on to become the first woman to graduate from the Citadel, the Military College of South Carolina. I've come a long way in a long time. I've learned a lot about the value of hard work. 
Um, and I think that the Citadel, that experience that I went through really helped me uh, ensure that uh, I could be a strong voice regardless of, of the arrows or darts that are thrown at me, that I can take a position and stay there out of principle and not be worried about the outcome in the future. I'm doing the right thing for the right reasons. Thanks a lot for joining us. We will definitely want to stay in touch and um, get some sleep. Yes, sir. Thank you and have a good day. We have with us our colleague Hunter Walker, who was uh, covering the rally and the mob violence that ensued afterwards. Hunter, welcome back to Skullduggery. Hey, how are you? So tell us what you saw yesterday, what we know about the folks who were doing this and how all this completely insane violence came about. Well, <laughs> it's, a, it's a big question, but, um, you know, we, we've seen a lot of protest violence in D.C. over the past couple months. There were the Black Lives Matter protests this summer. And then in the past couple weeks, as the president has falsely disputed the election, we've seen these, these nightly skirmishes where the Proud Boys and other far-right groups have come into the city and clashed with other protesters, uh, torn Black Lives Matter banner, banners off churches. There's been stabbings. So heading into yesterday, the president had called for his supporters to come to the Capitol as the Electoral College vote was certified in Congress. There was an official rally on the Mall, and the president spoke at this rally, a quote-unquote stop the steal rally, uh, emphasizing his totally false allegation that the election was stolen from him. So from my perspective, you know, I knew it was going to be a rough day here in D.C., but I didn't know exactly where the focal point of um, the violence and tensions was going to be. So what I did is I sort of walked through the downtown in the morning because that has been a site of a lot of tension. And then I went to this rally, which was on the National Mall. Um, and the president, you know, delivered an extended speech to the point that many of his supporters were actually streaming out as he talked. And as he started to wrap up, I started to hear in the crowd, people are at the Capitol. We're going to the Capitol. Can I just break in there for a moment, Hunter, because what the president said, he never explicitly called for violence, but he did call on the crowd to march down to the Capitol, walk down Pennsylvania Avenue to be strong and buck up, quote, weak Republicans to get them to act with a kind of boldness and, quote, take our country back. I, I should add also that that was the president before that. Giuliani gave this talk where he uh, called for, quote, trial by combat and uh, Donald Trump Jr. condemning Republicans who were not standing with the president's debunked claims of voter fraud was telling the crowd they need to, quote, stand up and fight. Yeah. So there were there were these pretty clear incitements to violence. They held this huge rally with the president's participation as sort of counter-programming to the Electoral College certification. And then after these remarks, people clearly followed that lead, and they did indeed start marching down Pennsylvania Avenue towards the Capitol Dome. 
One thing the president said in his speech was he asked for Mike Pence to, quote, stand up and said he would be, quote, disappointed if Pence didn't. And this is sort of stemming from a conspiracy theory that's been advanced by Giuliani, Sidney Powell, and some of the president's other sort of cabal of fringier advisors who've, who've um, congealed around him um, as he's disputed the election. They've suggested falsely that Pence had some kind of power yesterday to reject the certification, even though Pence's role was largely ceremonial and he he made clear he was not going to do that. So as we were marching down Pennsylvania Avenue, people started to get word on their phones that Pence was conducting the process of uh, the electoral vote certification. And they started chanting, uh, I don't know what I can say on Skullduggery, but they started- You can say anything on Skullduggery. They, they started chanting, I mean, I remember this clear as a bell, fuck Mike Pence. And they were chanting, fuck Mike Pence, fuck Mike Pence. And then one of them said, he fucked us. And so they were enraged at Republicans, at Democrats, at, at basically everybody, and just barreling towards the Capitol. Hunter, I want you to talk about some of the rioters that you spoke to, because I think it's important for us to try to understand where they're coming from, what's driving them, how they're being incited to violence. But I want you to step back for a minute before you do that. You've covered this president. You covered the 2016 campaign. So, you know, we're talking about five years. And this sort of incitement of, uh, to violence has been a feature of his politics, uh, and all of a sudden, I, I, I've been to one Trump rally in, in my life, which was in Las Vegas in 2016. I think you might have been there. But, you know, that one rally, there was a protester, and, you know, it was the one where Trump famously said, I'd like to punch that guy in the face, and uh, was really whipping up the crowd against him, offering to pay the legal bills of, of uh, Trump uh, people at the rally who would, you know, kick the shit out of this, this, this protester. So he's done this all along. I don't know that we should be surprised that it's come to this, um, although clearly the Capitol Police were. Talk a little bit about that dynamic between his supporters and Trump and his ability to whip them up into a frenzy that has led to violence on many occasions now. Well, I think you're absolutely right in sort of, you know, fixing the roots of this in some of the president's um, violent rhetoric that got him elected, frankly. And a moment that really stands out for me, I just checked the date of it, was um, August 2017, when the president had a rally in Phoenix. And, you know, I think people didn't take enough notice of this event because it was, it was out there in Arizona, I think, um, Stuff that happens on the West Coast tends to get less less attention, you know, in the larger media. But this was really extraordinary. This rally ended with people being tear gassed away from the arena where the president spoke, and the crowd there that was outside included Antifa. It included far left open carry militia groups, and it included Bikers for Trump, the president's own motorcycle gang that he gleefully encourages. It included right-wing militia, it included the Proud Boys, and they were just brawling in the streets. Again, also called there by the president's presence. And I remember watching this and thinking that our politics had really taken a dark turn because that violent rhetoric, that encouragement of small incidents at his rallies in 2016 had now escalated to a point where we had both left-wing and right-wing uniformed groups brawling in the streets. And that is that is not, you know, we've seen that type of politics in the world 
but not in yeah. Not- it, it, it's what I mean. I always, it makes, always makes me think of you know in the in the eighties, you know, when there was brawling in the streets between communists and, and fascists. It's just a, a feature of their politics, and it has been for a long time. I did not expect to ever see that in the United States. Hunter, I got a question. So as you're sort of marching with these protesters as they're going down to the Capitol, did you have any sense that they had a plan that they were intending to just invade the Capitol grounds itself and go into the chambers? Were there leaders? Was there something that was planned or designed here? Or did this just happen, you know, organically? What there was was chaos, right? I actually kept asking people sort of, you know, what do you expect to happen here? What do you want? And there were no real answers, right? You know, the only thing one guy I spoke with near the end of the night, you know, summed it up basically. And he said, we want four more years of Trump. There was no rhyme or reason to this. There was only Trump. When they did get to the Capitol, I was I was on the steps with them. I was I was at the entranceways where they were climbing in and out of smashed windows, ransacking offices, um, using barricades as ladders. And there were people who attempted to be leaders, but it was just too chaotic for that. And and that includes the president. After sort of inciting this event, um, as it started to get really hairy. The president tweeted out, you know, we want everybody to be peaceful. I did see a guy attempting to read that tweet to the crowd on a megaphone. You could barely hear him. And and I think a really important point is that cell phones were completely jammed up on the Capitol. I couldn't get any data service at all. And I think the majority of people, there's no way they saw when the president in the White House finally tried to call for calm belatedly. Uh, They had just opened Pandora's box. And a similar incident happened. um, I was in front of one of the doors that they were breaking into, and a man jumped up on a megaphone and he said, Kaylee McEnany, the press secretary, has just tweeted that they're calling in the National Guard at Trump's discretion, and they want us to leave. And his idea was that they should all march to CNN and MSNBC. And he said, because, quote, that's where it all started. And no one followed that guy. And what was so striking about that moment to me was that, you know, if we're saying it all started at CNN, Kaylee McEnany's career started at CNN. (laughs) And so, you know, I, I guess I go back to if there were any leaders or driving forces here, it's the people you named that were on that stage. Rudy Giuliani, Donald Trump Jr., the president, Kaylee McEnany. It's these people who, and initially on pretty mainstream media channels, okayed this violent rhetoric, okayed and, and advanced this false narrative that the election was a fraud and, and just enraged people. I mean, you know, if, if you sincerely believed that the election was stolen, wouldn't you be angry? <laughs> yeah, of course. And yeah. by the way, just to add on the media, Trump did say our media has once again said our media has become the enemy of the people. It's the biggest problem we have in this country. So if you tell this crowd of very angry people who think that there's been this uh, massive fraud taking away their dear leader that the enemy is the media, it wouldn't be all that surprising that people would want to confront members of the media and perhaps uh do bad things to them. But the, I, I'm, I'm still just back to when they started walking up the Capitol. Obviously, one big question today is, 
What was the Capitol Police doing? Why were they letting them in? Uh, you know, I've been in the Capitol thousands of times. You go through the, you know, uh, you go through the x-ray machine. You get checked very carefully. How were all these people allowed to just prance in to the House and Senate chamber? So it's a great question. I wasn't, you know, as I said before, I wasn't there with them at the beginning. Um, I was there after the Capitol had already been overwhelmed. But I think there's a little bit of a misconception going on about this right now. You know, a lot of people are pointing out that those Black Lives Matter protests that we saw this summer, which did include some violence, it included some looting and some rioting, but nothing on the scale of what we saw yesterday. And yet it was met with a far more violent crackdown from the police. The U.S. Capitol is, of course, you know, a federal building. And it is under the jurisdiction of the U.S. Capitol Police. For them to have had reinforcements from other agencies, that would be a decision of Trump and his administration. So this fault lies, again, directly with the president. He did not have any hardened posture at the Capitol. Yeah, but wait a second. Hunter, the the Capitol Police protects the Congress. That's uh, an arm of the Congress, not the president. Right, but, but what I'm saying is that the Capitol Police was completely overwhelmed by this. They needed reinforcements from other agencies. And really, if we knew this event was going to happen in D.C. yesterday with bunches of people being encouraged to take to the streets and protest the what they called the quote-unquote steal, we should have seen a hardened posture here in D.C. I mean, it struck me immediately as I was heading downtown during the protest this summer, National Guard and DEA and the full alphabet soup of federal agencies had the streets blocked off and traffic blocked off below K Street. None of that was on the ground yesterday. So, you know, yeah, I think the Capitol Police probably could have done a lot more to prepare for this, but they alone could not handle a crowd of this size. And Trump did not provide them reinforcements until much later in the day when they let D.C. Metropolitan Police in and they let the National Guard in. Well, who knows um, what Trump just, is is approving or letting happen at this point. Um, he seems well, to be it's, it's completely stark, out of it. It's a very stark contrast to this summer when Trump and former Attorney General Bill Barr called in literally federal prison guards and that whole alphabet soup of agencies, and they tear gassed people in Lafayette Park, and they were they were shooting rubber bullets. They were they were being extremely rough in the streets in response to far less, and and he certainly didn't do that yesterday. Right. I mean, what what is striking to me is look, I can sort of get that from the law enforcement perspective, they did get sharply criticized and almost universally criticized for the kinds of shows of force they used in the Lafayette Square protests around Black Lives Matter and in other cities. So it is conceivable to me that they were being extra cautious not to be too provocative in responding to these protests. But what I don't get is the the massive intelligence failure here, because all you had to do was go on social media and listen to what the QAnon people were saying, other Trump supporters were saying, in which there were explicit calls for bringing guns to the Capitol, for standing up to uh, you know, to stop the steal, to to block this you know horrible coup from their perspective that's going on in the country that's uh, allowing Joe Biden to become president and. I just don't get how 
our intelligence community and how the Capitol Police and law enforcement, how they didn't see this coming. Yeah, I mean, I, I wonder, and it's it's I, I don't have the reporting to know this for sure right now, but, you know, I feel like at least part of it is that the president was literally encouraging this. So, so you know, his agencies did not do anything to prepare for it or respond to it. Another thing I thought in, as I was in the crowd, you know, in the days leading up to this event, um, folks from the Proud Boys and other people were arrested with weapons. I was extremely worried that some of these rioters in the crowd were armed. No one was open carrying. That is illegal here in DC. And they made it very clear that anyone who did that was gonna be arrested. But there were a lot of people in full tactical gear with military equipment. And I think there was uh, almost certainly some people who were armed in that crowd. And I was kind of worried if the cops, you know, just as someone who was uh, effectively a bystander, if the cops had started or Capitol Police or anyone had started firing on the crowd, would this have, you know, devolved into full-on shooting. So I do think the the law enforcement response was limited in that sense. And really what was needed here was more preparation and a more hardened perimeter, because as you point out, it was very clear to anyone monitoring the right wing that yesterday was going to be dangerous. Where do we go from here? There are reports of uh, uh, resignations of uh, senior White House staff. Mark Short, the vice president's chief of staff, was, I'm told, blocked from returning to the White House yesterday by an angry president uh, because uh, he blamed Short for uh, bucking up Mike Pence to do his constitutional duty and not interfere with the electoral vote. Uh, there's a talk on, the, uh, on Capitol Hill of impeachment him again, demands for uh, invoking the 25th Amendment. Give us a sense first of the state of the White House right now, and what do you think the response is going to be, the consequences are going to be for this action? Well, first off, in terms of where we go from here, I mean, I, I don't think this is totally over. A lot of the people that I talked with in those crowds yesterday had no plans to let up even though they were essentially cleared back from the Capitol with tear gas and flashbangs. Where were uh, they last night? Basically, at one point, I think shortly before 3 p.m., D.C. Mayor Muriel Bowser said she was going to issue a citywide curfew at 6 p.m. She did? Yeah. In the hour and a half before the curfew took effect, and I, got, uh, I, I was right up there for one of these things, some of the law enforcement in the Capitol started using tear gas and flashbangs and really pushing people back. And I think part of this was, again, the law enforcement at the Capitol had been reinforced by that point with DC Metropolitan Police and, and units from the National Guard. So they started to push the crowd back by circa 520, 530. They did seem to have managed to establish a, a perimeter around the Capitol. And once they did that, Basically, all of a sudden, about 20 or 30 minutes before the curfew, one of the police officers literally said to the, you know, the crowd of diehards that was remaining, time to go home. And they just started pressing forward with riot shields and moving people into the lower parts of the grounds of the Capitol complex. That was mainly DC Metropolitan Police and Capitol Police. But as they moved forward, I saw some FBI in the crowd, and they were also then reinforced by a large contingent of National Guard. And they literally, the night ended with them literally pushing people with riot, using riot shields and mace down the National Mall alongside one of the reflecting pools um, and just pushing them away from the Capitol. 
So back to my question oh, about yeah, <laughs> uh, the, the, the state of the White House right now and uh, what consequences there might be at this point. So, yeah, there's a lot of people talking about, you know, potentially removing Trump from office. Uh, we saw Congresswoman Ilhan Omar was the first to say um, she was going to write up articles of impeachment. Um, and then a lot of um, a lot of other people jumped onto that call. Um, there's been talk of the 25th Amendment. Uh, John Bolton, who's clearly thought about this a lot, was on CNN. And he said one thing that he worries about that is um, Trump could then have legal recourse to, to fight it. Um, and that could actually be another ugly fight in Congress, which is obviously worrisome, given what we saw, <laughs> what we saw yesterday, you know, the idea of holding holding votes and, and procedures to remove Trump would be quite fraught and potentially dangerous. We are seeing defections, you know, within the Republican Party, even within the Trump administration. But, you know, the president spoke at an RNC event this morning and he was cheered. And you're seeing people like Congressman Mo Brooks espouse the totally ridiculous theory that, you know, yesterday's protest was the work of Antifa. When I, there's no evidence of that. There was no presence from them on the streets yesterday. This was Trump supporters. So I think what we're really seeing is the Republican Party kind of breaking apart in real time. And there is this Trumpian wing that, is buying his conspiracy theories about the election, fully devoted to him. One person unironically in the crowd yesterday referred to Trump as the supreme leader um, and said they were out in the streets trying to protect the quote, supreme leader. And then there are, I think, more mainstream Republicans who you know, were happy to go along with Trump as long as they did and are sort of confronting the fact that this has gotten really dangerous. And but when you say on the on the dear leader point, I should point out that when Trump made that video, supposedly to try to tamp things down, a video that's since been uh, removed by Twitter and Facebook, he referred at one point to, quote, our sacred landslide victory. And that really struck me sacred. I mean, you know, as I tweeted yesterday, we're we're into Jonestown Waco territory here when he's calling his victory using words like sacred. Yeah, I mean, it's always been something of a cult of personality. I mean, but sacred suggests it's uh, there's a religiosity there or sort of cult like uh, behavior. There was a clear religiosity in the crowd. Yesterday, too, I saw multiple groups of evangelical Christians in various different costumes. There was one guy, it looked like he was almost a Roman soldier, but he said he was dressed as a quote unquote freedom fighter from the Book of Mormon. So there are a lot of people who very clearly connected Trump to their religious ideology. I mean, I met two people on the mall who were wearing tri-corner hats, robes covered with the Virgin of Guadalupe and carrying Jewish shofars and, and in the man's case, a large marijuana joint. And they said they were part of a group called, quote unquote, the Healing Church in Rhode Island, and they were there to pray for Trump. So there's a lot of you know non-mainstream religious ideologies that have now gotten tied into the president's cult of personality and, and conspiracy. So what's your best guess or hunch on what Trump does from here? He has now finally <laughs> accepted there will be a peaceful transition on January 20. Does he do any more crazy things in these last couple of weeks he's got left? Does he show up for the inauguration? Does he split town? And who will be left? I mean, I the think diehards I, in the bunker. 
I, I think I've said this to you before. I, I really am always loath to try to predict what President Trump will do next. It's a, it's a tough game to get into, Mike. But um, I think that what the president and his hardline diehards are finding in the wake of this shocking violence and essentially terrorism at the Capitol yesterday is just utter revulsion and rejection from more mainstream quarters of society. Again, as you pointed out, there have been resignations within the administration, almost universal condemnation, including, you know, from former Republican administrations. And also, I think these people are finding condemnation at home. I tweeted a video of this one woman who you know was maced and she said it's a revolution we're storming the capital and multiple people from her town have since contacted me told me her name they've put her name out on social media and tagged the FBI and they're literally trying to see her arrested so i think that these people are you know going to find including the president are going to find a lot of rejection in their communities and you know become an increasingly small and hardline group. Uh, I, I think you're absolutely right to compare it to a bunker. And that's essentially where the president and his supporters find themselves. The question that I've had on my mind that a lot of people have been raising is, you know, are we seeing the death rattle of, of you know, this Trump Trumpism and this, this very dark phase in our history? Or are we seeing the birth pangs of something new and really scary? And so it connects to this question that I know you're thinking about and you're covering is what happens to Trump. You know, we've now seen a rupture between Trump and the leadership of the Republican Party. McConnell's speech and Pence defying him and Republicans talking about the 25th Amendment or, you know, or even impeachment. So that suggests to me that Trump breaks with the Republican Party and tries to build his own movement that's separate and apart from that, maybe even his own party that has a way of organizing this disparate, chaotic movement that we saw an expression of yesterday. Do you think that's a possibility? Yeah, I think, you know, we're seeing both a death and a, a, new, a new birth, right? We're essentially seeing the presidency of Trump go down in flames. We're seeing Trump as a mainline Republican, uh, you know, that notion is being completely thrown out now as he's rupturing with, with a lot of the other leadership in the party. And that hardcore, those people who are sort of with him in the metaphorical bunker are, I think, forming their own movement. And, you know, I, I was just saying to Mike, I, I don't like trying to predict what Trump's going to do next. It's a, it's a tough game. But I think it's safe to say that Donald Trump is going to keep being Donald Trump. The guy is essentially addicted to campaigning. He loves the adulation. He loves his rallies. He he speaks of his victories in, in, in terms of, you know, the sacred. And nothing makes him happier than recounting, sort of watching the numbers roll in. And he is, sorry, but he is obsessively adored by tens of millions of Americans. And it is hard to imagine a Trump light Josh Hawley or a Ted Cruz or a Tom Cotton coming along and taking and siphoning off that support. I, I think you're right. And I think it's also important to point out that Trump is a man who's in a lot of legal and financial peril. He's facing multiple state investigations, uh, namely in New York. He's also, per the reporting of the New York Times, he has hundreds of millions of dollars of debt that's about to come due. And I think 
maintaining a political career and a sort of forever campaign is one of his best moves to potentially survive those challenges. And what I mean by that is, you know, first off, framing any potential investigations as a political attack is probably one of the better defenses that he's got. He's also continually used his campaign to enrich himself. And, you know, we we see that continuing now throughout the president's efforts to, quote unquote, stop the steal. He's been raising money for a new PAC that he launched almost immediately after the election. He said it was for election defense efforts, but um, it, very quickly they stopped doing anything to challenge the election and they had no legitimate recourse. And the president and his allies are essentially just funding themselves. I mean, quite literally in the case of Rudy Giuliani, who's got a massive retainer, and if you read into his divorce case, has an even more precarious financial situation than the president. So I think for reasons both personal and professional, uh, and the personal element is those people adore him and he adores being adored by them, you are going to see the president just continue to sort of run his movement, even as sort of more mainstream quarters of the world reject it. Speaking of Rudy Giuliani, <laughs> a guy you know very well, having spent years uh, covering New York politics, I'd like to close with uh, probably the only sort of humorous element to this whole saga, and that is uh, Rudy's phone call last night to a United States senator. He thought he was calling Tommy Tuberville, the new uh, Republican senator from Alabama. And I think we have a tape of that phone call, or at least an excerpt from it. Mark, you want to play it? Senator Tuberville, or I should say Coach Tuberville, this is Rudy Giuliani, president's lawyer. I'm calling you because I want to discuss with you how they're trying to rush this hearing and how we need you, our Republican friends, to try to just slow it down so we can and get these legislatures to get more information to you. So that was uh, Rudy last night trying to get uh, Tupperville to delay the uh, Electoral College proceedings. He leaves this lengthy voicemail, only it wasn't on Tupperville's phone. It was sent. It was on the phone of another U.S. senator who then uh, leaked it, provided it to, I think, Steve Hayes, or at least he tweeted it out uh, this morning. So, Rudy, you know, the chief legal architect of the president's completely preposterous legal attack on the election can't even get his phone calls straight to which senator he's calling. I think you have you've had some experience with this yourself, Hunter. Yeah, I mean Rudy Rudy has famously uh butt dialed reporters uh and had sensitive conversations that could be overheard. I used to communicate with him fairly regularly on his three different phones and multiple apps that he uses. And during this time, Rudy would Rudy, at least on at least one occasion, just sent me a random stream of pu a punctuation as a text message. I, I guess that was a butt text. Rudy stopped speaking to me essentially after uh, one of his close allies um, and another person who has remained on this sort of um, shrinking cadre of, of hardliners advising the president, Victoria Tensing, spoke to me on the phone and cursed out former Congressman Trey Gowdy, who at that point had just joined Trump's legal team. And when I printed that, both she and Rudy were enraged. So, you know, I would say these are not masters of discretion 
<laughs> and they are they are also not yeah. masters of constitutional law. I mean, everything he said <laughs> right. in that voice message was completely wrong and counterfactual, as is every bit of their efforts to overturn and challenge the results of this election. Well, but at least they're providing a little comic relief. Uh, <laughs> okay. Rudy, call me. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, Hunter, please uh, stay on top of this. We will uh, be uh, definitely having you back as we reach the final denouement of the Trump presidency. And if we get lucky, maybe one day Giuliani's butt will dial into skullduggery. <laughs> to skullduggery. <laughs> Fingers crossed, guys. And we will publish it unedited. <laughs> right. Okay. I'd like to end this episode of Skullduggery by replaying the closing remarks in our Conspiracy Land podcast series from last fall. The series examined in detail just one of Donald Trump's assaults on the truth. His comments, repeated nearly a dozen times on Twitter, suggesting that one of his media critics, Joe Scarborough, had murdered a former staffer, Lori Klausutis, nearly two decades ago. As we showed, there was nothing to Trump's claims. But he felt aggrieved and angry at what Scarborough was saying about him on Morning Joe. So he lashed out with vile accusations, riling up his supporters and energizing the devotees of QAnon, who parroted and amplified what the president had to say on social media. Hearing Trump's wild and unsubstantiated charges about election fraud brought this earlier episode to mind, raising once again questions about how history will judge him. Let's listen to this from the third and final episode of season two of Conspiracyland. And one other point, perhaps with a little historical perspective. We've all become so inured to many of the things that President Trump says and does, so that each outrage has only a brief moment in the spotlight, whipping the media into a frenzy for one news cycle until it's overtaken by yet another tweet or comment. What infuriated and appalled folks one day is forgotten the next, but sometimes it's worth taking a step back and freezing the moment to look closely at what the president has just done and ponder what it tells us about him and what it means for the rest of us. That's what we've tried to do here with the story of Lori Klausutis and Joe Scarborough. Donald Trump, at least in his tweets, never quite accused Joe Scarborough of actually committing murder. He only suggested it. A lot of people think so, he said. It's very suspicious. I feel like he did. Somebody needs to look at it. There is no statute of limitations. He also never actually said that Lori Klesudis had been having a sexual affair with Scarborough. He only implied it. Whatever happened to your girlfriend, he wrote about Scarborough, never actually mentioning Klesudis' name, though there was no doubt who he was talking about. It was the classic smear, guilt by innuendo, planting seeds of doubt among millions of his followers without offering a speck of evidence to back any of it up. Seventy years ago, a U.S. Senator from Wisconsin, Joseph McCarthy, did much the same thing, making reckless charges, implying that there were hordes of communists embedded inside the U.S. government, questioning the patriotism of loyal Americans, breeding conspiracy theories. McCarthy and McCarthyism, the name given to his brand of politics, held sway for four years, until the media finally stood up and called him out, until his fellow senators censured him until the American public got fed up and turned against him. And then Joe McCarthy, for all intents and purposes, went away, leaving only unsettling memories of how low our politics can go until we are reminded of it once again.
Those were my comments four months ago. But I have to say, we saw again how low our politics can go this week in vivid technicolor with tragic consequences.